CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 32 When crossing borders becomes a necessity Which role for CEE in the Ukrainian refugee crisis? Only a few experts expected something like this to happen. Nobody believed it. When Europe is still struggling with COVID-19 pandemic, another blow has hit the continent. Who would ever thought that such a conflict would break out again? In the meantime, the war in Ukraine and its consequences affect all of us. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, More than 4 million refugees have left the country, while about 6 million people have been displaced internally within the country. Europe is experiencing the largest mass migration crisis since the end of the Second World War, the first of its kind since the war in ex-Yugoslavia. A situation that is sadly not without precedent. Using Mark Mezover's words, the dark continent has faced numerous war and refugee crises over the last century. And here we are again. Welcome to our podcast series CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Daniel Martinek and I am a research associate at IDM. And I am hosting today's episode on the role of Central Europe in the ongoing refugee crisis. I am very pleased to welcome Almina Besic, assistant professor at the Department of International Management of Johannes Kepler University in Linz. Hi Almina. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. Almina, you are an expert in international management with a focal point on migration and integration. To begin with, I would like to ask you to quickly sum up for our listeners what we have actually witnessed in the migration aspect since the outbreak of the war in Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, you said it already. Uh, I looked also the uh, numbers up yesterday at UNHCR. Um, we have, I think now, almost 12 million people who are affected by the war, um, and the majority still displaced internally. I think this is quite an important point to mention, because this might lead to a secondary movement, right? So we have, uh, as you said, over 6 million displaced internally, mainly moving from east to the west um, of the country, mostly on the border with Poland, for example. And then we have 4 million refugees who have left Ukraine since the war began. And this is, of course, unprecedented in terms of speed and in terms of scale. And the countries uh, who are taking most refugees are, as usual, neighboring countries. So this is kind of common um, at the start of, of mass migrations. Poland has taken over 2 million people. I think the numbers yesterday showed 2.3 million people in Poland, um, in Romania, over 600,000 people, in Hungary, over 360,000 people, and in Slovakia, over 280,000 people. So these are uh, really high numbers um, of people. And of course, this kind of quick mass movement is possible for Ukrainians compared maybe also to other refugee movements because the entry is generally possible to Schengen for those people so they can move and what is also I think important to see is that those people that are now moving have the means to move as well so they're mobile they are from bigger cities they have a car right they have the means they have the money to move quickly and a lot of people who are still kind of stuck right in the country they might move in, in a second wave Uh, sort of once they have the possibility with hum humanitarian corridors, etc. Thank you very much for this brief summary of the of the last weeks. Um, my second question would be, 
are there any historical parallels with this refugee crisis? Uh, can we maybe compare them in a certain ways to the developments which we observed in the years 2015-2016 or any parallels with the war in the Western Balkans in the 90s? Mm. I think in terms of scale and speed, and you mentioned it also in your introduction a little bit, this is quite unprecedented. And I've read also a lot of historians are, are comparing it with, you know, the large movements that have happened in World War One or World War Two in, in Europe. Um, and it is, of course, much larger than the refugee movements coming from the Yugoslav Wars uh, and also the 2015-2016 refugee movements. Um, I also don't like to call the 2015 sort of refugee movements as a crisis because the numbers were much lower. It was kind of a different sentiment, I would say. And it is already really the fastest movement that we have seen so far in Europe, where I think roughly one million people have been leaving in the first weeks of the country, and we have never seen uh, such a movement. What we have also seen, and this is Partly unprecedented, I would say, is that this large support by neighbors, because of course the neighboring countries are affected mostly uh, with people coming in. There is a vast humanitarian response by governments and especially civilians. People have been sheltered, you know, in schools, in private apartments, camps, you name it, right? And this is, as I said, mainly in the neighboring countries. Uh, but also other EU countries are, are helping quite a bit. I can, for example, share the experience that we have at my university here in Linz, where we are uh, providing support for a couple of students um, that are coming in to study at our university in this semester. Uh, we have an initiative at university called MORE, uh, which is, has been ongoing since 2015. This is across Austria that is supposed to support uh, students who come in with administrative tasks and, and kind of the general integration. Um, and we have a lot of motivated colleagues who have started also an initiative from themselves to help those people. So there is a lot of help going on. Um, and you asked also if we can compare it right to the 2015-2016 um, movement and also to the to the Balkan wars. I think this is quite a, a large question, right? Um, so, so I'm going to try to break it down a little bit. If, if, if we look at those movements in 2015 and 2016, um, what we have seen in the beginning in countries like Germany, for example, or Sweden and so on, there was in the beginning also this huge outpour of help uh, from civil society, from NGOs and so on. But from the political side, very quickly, this has turned differently. We have seen it in kind of the reactions from 2016, 2017 on, is that there has been a bit of an, uh, um, a view from, from policy side at the European level and in, at many country levels to manage this so-called crisis, right? Um, so the aim was really to manage so-called mass migration um, rather than a humanitarian kind of response. This has included issues like reinstated border checks at, at Schengen borders, right? More rigorous control of borders with non-EU countries, these notorious pushbacks that are, by the way, happening still, right? It's just not that much in the news anymore from different countries, right? Uh, towards the edge of Europe, I would say. Um, and really, I, I think the, the most kind of important development was the deal with Turkey to prevent sort of Syrian refugees and other refugees to enter Europe. I think this is a big difference. And at European level, the biggest uh, change or the biggest difference is the type of protection. And this is unprecedented uh, for the EU. And this is a temporary protection directive. And this was developed as a response to the Balkan Wars in the 1990s but has not been implemented so far. So this is the first time that this protection kind of has been implemented and this allows for Syrian refugees 
to benefit from the right to live and work and receive benefits in almost all EU countries. Thank you very much. It's really nice to observe the support which is uh, rising from the neighboring countries, but also from the EU institutions. Uh, but before we go maybe to the uh, EU level or European level, I would suggest let's take a closer look at the, for example, Central European countries, such as Poland, Slovakia, or Czechia, which are actually one of the most affected countries by the current migration flows. What are the challenges arising for the hosting countries and their population when it comes to this Ukraine refugee crisis? And what measures were actually implemented on the national levels connected to these migration mm -hmm. flows? Mm -hmm. I cannot go into detail on the different measures at the countries, but um, I think, of course, there are a lot of challenges. And the first thing is this initial reaction, right, from civil society and also from, from the government. Um, for example, in Poland, I believe the government is giving a certain amount of money to people who are hosting Ukrainian refugees. So there is a, a kind of emergency policy reactions. Um, and the other thing which is quite important to consider, uh, so it's not just this emergency reaction, which has been very good uh, and very helpful for Ukrainian refugees, is also the connection between Ukraine and these neighboring countries, specifically Poland, which is taking the most, is of course, um, Poland has been home to already, I think, more than a million Ukrainians before the war. There is tangled history, similar languages, similar culture, and so on. This will make a lot of things easier, I would say. But of course, there is already, we can see a strain in capacity in, or in support options. Um, so those countries that have taken the largest or the highest number of refugees have rather undeveloped integration policies in general. And beforehand, we could see, I would say on a political side, at least a rather anti-immigration sentiment, right? And this is currently suppressed um, and is working well. But of course, there's going to be the longer the conflict uh, continues and the more people are coming in, it's going to get more and more difficult for those countries. And we cannot really disentangle it from the European level um, because those countries need and, and will need help from, from the European Union. And I think on the one hand, this could be a historical possibility also for the European Union to, to have a kind of a unified voice in terms of what does integration mean? How do we support integration of refugees in Europe? Um, so the EU could actually show strength here and help those countries and also capture them a little bit in terms of um, integration policies as they were rather skeptical beforehand, I would say. Um, so I think the EU support on the one hand should be financial support um, in terms of financing language courses, financing courses for the labor market, financing issues in terms of healthcare, et cetera, uh, capacity building for institutions in those countries to, to enable integration initiatives. So there is a lot of integration initiatives that are working very well across the EU. And I think uh, a kind of best practice examples uh, could be implemented. And there is already some work from the European Migration Network, for example, to map um, different initiatives that are ongoing in different types of integration, labor market integration, education, and so on, to really help these countries within the EU to cope on a longer term with the inflow of, of refugees. And, and this is very important and hasn't been done so far, right? A redistribution of refugees across the EU, because of course, um, it, it is going to be very difficult to expect a, a few countries to take the most burden, as we've seen also in 2015. Um, so the question is, will this happen or not? This is a political question, of course, but in, in my view, and also 
from, from research experience in 2015, 2016, this will be necessary. And I think there has been already political calls for this, as I believe the Germany's foreign minister has proposed so-called humanitarian hubs. And maybe one last point on this, from, from kind of personal talks with, with people I've met from Ukraine, um, and also from reading about their views on this is that a lot of people think or wish to, to go home soon. And at the same time, being from former Yugoslavia, I know that this has been the thought of many at the time, the Yugoslav wars, um, but for many, this will become permanent. So migrants will integrate into the adopted countries and, and the EU countries need to play the long game here uh, and really also learn from, from their past mistakes in integration. Thank you very much. Before we go uh, to the topic you just mentioned, I mean, the long term consequences of this refugee crisis, uh, let me just get back uh, maybe a little bit to this European level as we, as we were discussing and ask you what actually the European institutions uh, did during the past weeks, uh, what measures on the EU level has been implemented in order to ease the situation of the Ukrainian refugees, because uh, I'm aware of one program which was like granting mm -hmm. the um, three years guarantee or permission for Ukrainian refugees uh, in order to integrate them into the into the labor market and so uh, could you tell us a little bit maybe more mm -hmm. on the measures which were taken on the EU level yeah um, so the biggest measure is is the one you just mentioned and it's it's uh, really not just a program but it's the first time that the EU has decided to invoke the temporary protection directive. And this directive doesn't only enable Ukrainian refugees the access to the labor market, which is, um, of course, one of the main kind of backbones of integration, but not only, right? It enables also access to healthcare, which is very crucial, uh, access to social security and access to education and housing. And this is uh, really kind of the, the biggest policy that the EU has, has um, done so far in the past few weeks. Additional programs that I can think of uh, sort of immediately include also connections with employers who, who want to, to employ uh, Ukrainian refugees. Uh, I think the EU is planning a um, job portal specifically for Ukrainian refugees at the EU level. And there is discussions really of how to, first of all, distribute um, refugees across the EU and to assess what are their needs. And these things are, of course, very quickly being developed and ongoing, but are crucial in order to understand, first of all, who are those people coming in? And we know already from, from some statistics, this is mainly women and children currently, but this might change in, in the short or medium term. And what is also crucial and, and should be done as soon as possible is to assess what are the qualifications, who can really enter the labor market, who can continue education, who are those people really that are coming in and what, what is necessary for them across the EU level. But we need to understand one thing is that uh, migration and integration issues uh, are of course mainly at the national level. So main responsibility is, is um, at the national level. Thus the EU can provide support in activating, for example, the directive. Um, the member states can then decide whether this will be for one year or for, for three years, for example, which is, I believe, the maximum, and then can support initiatives that are ongoing financially and support capacity building. And I think this is either ongoing or already planned. Um, and that's why I, I mentioned in the beginning that this is, in my view at least, uh, a historic precedent also for the EU to strengthen EU's role in, in integration, basically. 
Thank you very much. Maybe for the last question, although I don't want to, to finish our episode too negatively, but what we can see currently, and you already touched upon this topic, is this anti-migration sentiment. I think that's something already we can observe, and it's rising slowly, and it's going to develop also as the refugee crisis is going to continue, and maybe even mm. more Ukrainians will come to the CEU region and to other parts of Europe. My question would be because the card or the reality changed quite in the opposite way, because what we observed back in 2015-16, the national governments were against the uh, refugee quotas and against mm. the redistribution of refugees. But now we have the situation when the refugees are actually in our region and maybe the national governments are actually going to ask the other members of the European Union for help in order to redistribute the refugees. So. Uh, I would like to ask you, what do you foresee in, in this regard? What developments would you expect? Yeah, I think there is a big difference, as we discussed already, between sort of the 2015 movement and also the movement in the 1990s from the Western Balkans, because at first, well, the 1990s, there weren't that many people first of all coming in. Um, and there wasn't also this sentiment that people will stay, but at the end they stayed and they sort of, most of them, I would say integrated. And then the big, big difference also to 2015, which I didn't mention before, is the who is coming in. I mean, of course, on the one hand, racism does play a role, right? Whom do we accept kind of as Europeans? And, and I believe even Ursula von der Leyen said very pointedly, this is our family. The Ukrainian people are the European family. And of course, 2015, 2016, nobody really said it in that way. And we also had more males coming in or, or young men, um, right? Compared to women and children. And this picture is different uh, if you look at also in, um, in the media and so on. And the support is outpouring right now. I think what Europe needs to do now, or the different countries in Europe need to do now, is build upon this and understand how to play this long game, and also to understand how to learn from these past mistakes to better distribute people across Europe, so to ease the burden of those countries like Poland, uh, like Hungary and so on, Slovakia that have currently sort of the, the main burden. Um, because of course, if those countries have the majority of people and they're staying for longer than you think, then things might change and also the sentiment might, might change. Um, I believe it is different compared to 2015 and also the sentiment towards the people is different, but still it, it might change, right? And I, I don't want to end actually on a, on a negative note in, in that sense, because I believe that there is already much more options for, for people coming from Ukraine because many of those are, for example, better educated, let's say, there are thousands of jobs being offered from them from different recruitment sites. For example, Adeco has offered one last, I believe, last week. Um, so you name it in healthcare and so on. Um, but there are systemic challenges that need to be addressed and that can lead to an anti-immigration sentiment if they're not addressed. Um, on the one hand, this is on the macro level, kind of institutional level. This is migration and integration policies. And I think the Ukrainian refugees already have a, a big problem solved because they have access to the labor market, but still you have housing, schooling, language courses, you know, healthcare and so on. All of this is needed and all of this requires money. And if countries are not supported in it, this will of course put a strain on, on budgets in, in countries, will put a strain on people who are already living in countries, uh, other nationals and so on. And this might then contribute to, to a change sentiment towards those refugees. So Europe again plays a role here in supporting those countries in order to avoid such strain. Then you have the labor market level, the organizational level, 
helping those people get into the labor market. But this doesn't only include offering jobs, but also really checking what is their capacity, um, you know, what jobs can, can those people do, and also looking a bit further ahead and not just looking at immediate access to the labor market, but looking at potentially providing those people with, you know, sustainable careers on the one hand. This includes much more involving employers, uh, giving employers, for example, subsidies for internships for, let's say, um, Ukrainians, and also focus not only really on early labor market integration, but on support in other areas. Uh, I mean, as being a refugee myself, um, and having a lot of experience with working with, with other refugees, there are many more issues to be addressed. For example, health issues that take a much longer time than you know, getting access to the labor market within the first few weeks. And I think we have to be careful, or the countries have to be careful, and the EU has to be careful in saying, okay, we, we focus much on early labor market integration without addressing you know, the, the other needs um, that those people might have. And this is on an individual level you know, can include checking what kind of, as I said, what kind of skills and resources those people have, early competence checks, but also really looking at what other help those people might need. And I think the big problem is in those neighboring countries to Ukraine that a lot of these things are not developed very well because the anti-immigration sentiment has been ongoing for, for several years there and it hasn't been, the, the money didn't flow there, right, to, to put it in simple terms. Um, and this will be necessary now to do. And the question is, who will fund these things? They come from European level and so on. So there will need to be a redistribution of, of funding. And I think as a, as a migration researcher, kind of what um, those countries need to focus on, on the one hand is, of course, this labor market integration, but really, on the other hand, all other integration domains like housing, specifically healthcare, and involving the different stakeholders. So what, what I have learned as an integration scholar is that integration is a collective endeavor, right? And the refugees will probably stay for, for a longer time in Europe. Thank you very much, Almina. I also do hope, as it's the case with you, that this narrative of European family that also the, the other members of the European Union, but also uh, the other European countries will uh, support and uh, help to ease the burden of the countries of the CEE region. With that, I would like to come to the end of our today's episode. But before we finish, I would like to ask you one question. Within the CEE podcast, we ask our guests uh, for further um, recommendations related to the topic. So I would like to ask you what kind of uh, art or piece of literature, music, uh, could you recommend us, uh, which could also maybe inspire us and lead us through these difficult times when it comes to the war in Ukraine and the uh, related migration flows? Thank you. Thank you very much, first of all, of course, for the invitation and for asking me to, to contribute um, also kind of a, a piece of art, uh, which I think is a great idea to think about is as you said, very complex issues of, of migration and how war affects different people. Um, and I mentioned that um, the Ukrainian war has so far led to the most exodus of women and children, right? Um, and for several years, there is um, quite an interesting museum that um, has been developed in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is called the War Childhood Museum, which uh, exhibits artifacts from children that are affected by war and conflict. Um, the Bosnian war on the one hand, and they also had an exhibition on, the, on children affected by the Syrian war. And they have started last year an exhibition on 
on children affected by the conflict in Ukraine, which of course hasn't started right now, right, but has started in 2014 already. And this exhibition has been a huge success in Kyiv, and they have an office in Kyiv as well, which uh, of course now I believe um, has been affected very much, um, of course, by the war. But I think the listeners, if, if they are interested, uh, should really check out their different exhibitions and, and how they are also showing what war means for children in a, in a sense. And for me, this is quite telling because in the Bosnian war, I was a child myself. And um, as I mentioned in kind of our discussion for the earlier questions, a lot of things take a lot of time um, for, for people who are affected by war. And the integration itself is a very, very long game. And um, I think this, not only policymakers should, should be aware of that, but also general people who are now taking in or helping Ukrainian refugees and Ukrainian children and, and, and women um, to really see this as this kind of a long period. will on the one hand need our support, but also the understanding um, of us. And I think the World Childhood Museum shows this quite, quite nicely. Thank you, Armina, for this recommendation. I think the museum is definitely worth of visit, particularly in these times, so that everyone can actually imagine and understand the, the horrors of the war. I would like to thank you once again for sharing with us your knowledge and valuable insights into this complex uh, problematic. So thank you very much for that. And I would like also to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, you can find further information and links about this episode in the description on, on the Acast, and of course, all information also on our social media channels. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to our podcast or recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Thank you for listening and until next time. Thank you. So you enjoyed this podcast? Then tune into another CEE episode and subscribe to the IDM podcast series on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, or elsewhere you get your podcast. And also have a look at the rest of our work on our website www.idm.at. For any feedback or podcast collaboration, feel free to contact me at e hontuberry at idm.at the email is in the description below this was cee central europe explained a podcast series produced by the institute for the danube region and central europe powered by elster group with the ongoing participation of daniela Paiden, marvin atalik daniel martinek and sebastian Schaeffer. Production and editing, Emma Hunterberry. Proofreading, Jack Gill. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institut für die Danube Region und Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1990.